0: Coming up on Garden Talk.
1: Benefit of peat moss is it's very acidic. And to that acidity, we can load it with calcium that's alkaline. And that brings us to the pH that we desire. And that also creates a situation where the plant has access to a lot of calcium. If you're intelligent and build an infrastructure and assets that allow you to manage your farm without buying it again every year, you can start to create profit margin for yourself. I do not want to to put it lightly that if you're making soil and you're counting on it, the local compost could be the thing that that bites you. So make sure that's good. But what we found is that doubling your container size usually increased your yield by about 60%. For living soil, it was better to use pumice and rice holes. And that became one of the standards for the base. Even if you don't stop what you're doing, add one new thing and make some soil from scratch, get your own hands in there. I think you'll never go back if you try it.
0: What's up, everybody? For you that don't know me, my name is Chris, AKA Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast, this episode number 51. In this episode, I interview Jeremy Silva. He is the owner of Build a Soil, and he has a very deep knowledge when it comes to organic gardening. He talks all about building a good soil, the foundation. He also gets into the feedings of organic inputs that happen throughout the plant's life. Great information for those of you who are just getting started in organics. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast or Patreon, If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to Patreon.com slash MrGrowIt. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Big thanks to Happy Hydro for sponsoring this video. Happy Hydro now has complete grow tank kits, and many of the kits actually come with my Beginner Grow book. The kits consist of AC Infinity Grow Tents, an AC Infinity ventilation system, your choice of lighting, whether it be Spider Farmer, HLG, the Green Sunshine Company, or Grower's Choice, home Living Soil, Nutrients, Oscillating Fans, and more. I will leave a link to Happy Hydro Grow Tent kits down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MR GrowIt for a discount on their products. Thanks to AC Infinity for sponsoring this podcast. They sent me over their Grow Tent which has a canvas density of 2000D, making them the thickest grow tent on the market today. It has an aluminum plate that mounts your controller to the grow tent with a lightproof pass-through for cable routing. The frame has 50% thicker steel poles and carries two times more weight than the standard grow tents. Coupon code MRGROWIT will get you a discount on their products, and I'll leave a link to their website down in the description section below. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk podcast. Today, I am joined with Jeremy Silva from Build the Soil. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me on. What's up, guys? Doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty good. Happy to have you on. There's actually so many people, a countless number of people have commented on my videos and said, get Jeremy on. I think one of the comments said, you and Jeremy together on an episode would be magic. So, <laughs> you know, once That's I hear awful. all these positive comments about you, I'm like, let's see if we'll come on, you know, maybe we'll come on and uh, spit some knowledge, you know? I appreciate you asking. That's how everything
1: works. And when I said, um, hello to you guys, I should say hello to you, but I was also saying hello to everyone and I appreciate them asking for us to interact because, um, unbeknownst to you, Dean who does our video editing had pointed you out immediately when we started YouTube and said, this guy is professional, he's helping people and he's got a good platform. And, um, then to have you reach out, I thought, wow, how cool is that full circle? and um, because of that respect, it was just a no-brainer for me to come on. I didn't feel like you were going to be some weird show that I hadn't heard of that was uh, not going to be good for business or something, and I also saw a big opportunity. You talk to a lot of people that maybe haven't heard from us yet, and so I look at it as a big opportunity to maybe share more of the message, if that makes
0: sense. Absolutely, for sure. I think one area where you're clearly known for is organic gardening, and I really want this episode to be, I thought it'd be most appropriate to have it getting into organic gardening right so more specifically i like to cover the foundation of building soil and i also want to get into the organic feedings throughout the plant's life but before we get into all that things i like to do with every guest is introduction so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening
1: yeah sure um name is jeremy silva and i started build a soil almost 10 years ago it feels like more than 10 years but it's kind of like where's the day where it became official And, um, I came into gardening maybe differently than a lot of people, but I'm finding it's more of a normal story. I grew up in a cul-de-sac. I grew up where this was not normal. And so for me, when I finally saw it, like my grandma had a vegetable garden, I was young, so I didn't, didn't mean that much. But when I moved to Colorado in 2009, um, it became something that I was fascinated by. And the fact that you could just take a potato, dig a hole, I mean, arguably, you don't even need to dig a hole. Now that I've learned about no-till gardening, Ruth Stout, she would just put it in the mulch. But you could put one potato in, come back months later and have a dozen potatoes. And it's like nature's 3D printing. It's so abundant. And I was also at that time um, wanting to be more positive, wanted to create uh, a lack of maybe more stability by knowing, hey, at least I can grow my own food. And I was also growing uh, medicinal plants. And so it seemed like All of that came together as sort of a gateway to turn me into somebody who cared about gardening. And I never thought that I'd be like, yeah, gardening. Um, But it's been huge in my life and it's taught me a ton besides uh, just about the result. But there's a lot that's affected me as far as the process and the discipline. And so because of that, um, over a decade ago, I was in a place where I was looking for where my life was headed. I had a lot of changes that happened when I moved to Colorado. And I was working somewhere that I wasn't really excited about. And my American dream was to have some small internet business that would allow me the freedom to garden more and go disc golf and snowboard and kind of live the life that I've dreamed about. And I had no family at the time. And so it wasn't a huge risk, but it was still really scary. I went into my job on a Saturday with almost no reason. I'd thought about it and I quit. And I figured if I didn't do it, I was too comfortable. I was gonna wake up, it was gonna be 40 years from now, and i would be doing the same thing. And uh, it was hard, but I made the decision and everything worked out. I had like a propane tank that was hard to buy one time, a few things that happened in between there part of the story. But eventually um, I placed a few ads on Craigslist and people started buying worm castings. And then I was always answering questions on the forums. And all of a sudden it turned a corner where we had more orders than I could deal with. I had to start hiring employees. And it went from this little idea that might pay for a couple bills to a huge opportunity that consumed a lot of my time. And I had to decide, is this really what I want to do? And it's been the best decision I've ever made. Build a Soil now has about 40 employees and we have a vegetable farm and we distribute to multiple countries as well as all over the United States. And none of it would have been possible. Had I not just made that, you know, five second decision to walk in and quit and say, this is what I'd rather do with my life. And so, um, that's pretty much the, the story in a nutshell, if that helps.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a customer of build the soil I actually did a whole bunch of stuff. I did a good haul during Black Friday. You guys have a crazy Black Friday sale every year. So I actually did, uh, did a haul and then actually did an unboxing video to show my audience kind of what I got from you guys. And uh, people s- seem to really like that one. I know you were blasting out content on Instagram for a long, long time. Finally made the switch to YouTube and things have blown up for you on YouTube channel. I mean, you got your it's just so much good information. You have a 10 by 10 with all different quad, you know, several different quadrants in there, different things going on. You're showing your audience how to grow organically, you know, use your products and do things in a sustainable way. Can you talk to us just a little bit about your YouTube channel, kind of what you got going on there?
1: Yeah, definitely. So for those of you that don't know, we have a 10 by 10 grow tent and that came serendipitously. I had it at my house. I moved. I no longer had space for it. Then I decided, well, there's we're moving our shipping area out of our retail store, and we're moving that into its own building. So I had the space in the tent, and I decided to throw it up. And man, it was really nice to come into work and have this oasis that I think most people are looking for when they set up a greenhouse. They want to walk into a jungle and have it be um, a little bit of peace in their life. And it was great, and um, we were already documenting four by four grow tents, and the idea of sharing it in a walk-in space became an idea. And so we started doing different methodologies. We would have some customers that had raised beds. We had some customers that wanted to do um, sub irrigation or five gallon containers or small containers, and we don't always recommend it. So the YouTube channel became a way for us to prove it, walk the walk, show people that these things actually work. And for me, when I was learning, that's all I paid attention to. There's a lot of information, a lot of people that wanna teach gardening that have never done it, um, but have watched some videos and they kind of teach what they feel should work. And that leads to a lot of problems. So it was unique, I think, to have a producer that didn't sell just other people's stuff and actually showed you how to use it in a method where we could fail just live in front of everybody. Usually, you see these grows start and then they just don't update, (laughs) right? Like, ah, it didn't go that well. Um, And that obviously put a ton of responsibility on us to perform. That's what it should feel like. Like if you're gardening for your family back in the day and you didn't produce, that's a problem right? And it doesn't always go perfect. So the 10 by 10 has basically been just a display of that. So if you're interested, check out the 10 by 10. We do, as you mentioned, a different style in each quadrant. And we're about to start the next 10 by 10 series in the next month. We've got a little bit of groundwork to lay. So
0: Awesome. I'll definitely have a link to Jeremy's YouTube channel down in the description section below. And then if you're on one of the podcast platforms listening to this, just search build a soil on YouTube and his channel will pop up and you can check that out. So
1: we'll do a lot more this year. We've got the vegetable farm where we've threatened to document it and it's so much work. We don't usually take the time to, but this year we're going to be documenting a lot of what we do on our vegetable farm because uh, there's a lot of little tips and tricks and uh, we want to share it. So looking forward to that this year.
0: I get advice from you because I just started vegetables. Well, I don't want to say just started, but like three years ago, you know what I mean. I got a little little something going on, you know, with leafy greens and stuff. And yeah. I I like to watch your content there and get tips from you on, on that. So thanks for doing the vegetable content, you know. Yeah, definitely. Building soil. Let's get into it. So uh, you're often recommending Coots mix. You know, you give credit to him. Give credit where credit is due. He does the one to one to one ratio. So yeah. thirty three. 3.33 percent to 33.33 percent to 33.33 percent we'll just say 33 33 33 moving forward yep, yep but the first 33 is the base so sphagnum peat moss coca coir pit moss can you talk to us about what those things are um, pros and cons to them and which one you genuinely recommend to use
1: yeah absolutely so I've noticed there's a lot of confusion with new gardeners about volumes. They get kind of stri- like weird, almost like they're overthinking recipes. So the 33, 33, 33, the easiest way I think to describe it is it's a three-part recipe to make the base. One part of each ingredient, that happens to be 33%. If you wanna add another part, you can. Some people add some biochar or something and they'll call it a percentage. But at the end of the day, where all these formulas came from, Um, were based on what was available in size. And so if you're using peat moss, we'd usually go to uh, the local supplier, Home Depot or something, garden store. They have either a three cubic foot or more commonly the 3.8 cubic foot of peat moss. And it's in a big bale and it's compressed. So you have to fluff it up. When the 3.8 was fluffed, we found out by just manually doing it by bucket. Most of us found there's about six cubic feet of material in there. And that's where we started the recipe. So one bale of Canadian sphagnum peat moss, 3.8 cubic feet, that would be considered six cubic feet of peat moss. To that, if that's one part, we would then add one part of compost. So six cubic feet of compost. Many people use worm castings and compost, but the base recipe is just at least, it has to be one part compost, one part peat, and one part aeration. Aeration, um, most people were familiar with perlite. It's the white little pebbles and all of the Miracle-Gro soil on the Fox Farm. And on on the forums, what the guys were doing that were making soil from scratch is they were trying to make a conscious decision to be unique, choose a better ingredient if they could, and make it a more sustainable ingredient if possible. And so people started questioning the use of perlite. And we found out that, we can go deeper. I could talk all day on it. But essentially, instead of using that for living soil, it was better to use pumice and rice holes. And that became one of the standards for the base. Um, So building your own recipe from scratch, one part peat moss, one part compost, one part aeration. A lot of people use black lava rock, red lava rock. There's pros and cons to all of these, and I'd be happy to go into a little bit of detail there for you. But once you build the base, now the idea was how do we amend it? How do we add minerals and nutrients that are going to feed the soil and in consequence feed the plant? And how do we get it in some sort of balance? Well, before I took any soil testing uh, classes, before I read any books and before I understood, I would just blindly follow recipes I found online. And so how we found the Coots recipe was uh, a desire from the grow forums to document side-by-sides, which is still kind of what Build a Soil does. We just document what we do. And I ran a recipe from Ghastanistan, who was in the forum at the time. I ran uh, the True Living Organic style. We ran the Subcool style recipe. And then something was telling us to try this coot's recipe because he was just, it was so simple, right? He only added kelp, neem, crustacean, and a mixture of rock dust and calcium. Every other recipe from the forum was like 30 ingredients, you know, guanos and blood meals, bone meals just everything in the kitchen sink. And so I made the recipe and to honor it, I actually went up in the forest and got some forest litter to make it really alive. And It was one of the best experiences I've ever had growing. It was the first time that every single plant that I planted was all uniformly healthy. And it wasn't like one was runted and stunted with leaves that were, you know, curling and twisted. Um, And so that, I think that connection really brought us to want to share that recipe with everybody and everybody who uses it swears by it. And I think all of us eventually move on once we understand to tinkering with what we want out of it. And I think that's what anybody should do. You get a recipe for the best meal ever. Do exactly what the chef says, and then tinker it to your preferences. And uh, the Kootz mix has been a really good way to do that. So,
0: I noticed that you mentioned sphagnum peat moss, but you didn't really touch on cocoa or pit moss. Is there something like against it on a sustainable side of things that you know prevents you from from going towards cocoa or pit moss for that base?
1: Um, it's pure quality. So every decision we made at Build-A-Soil was to have the best quality regardless. Now that we're getting bigger as far as scale, we have multiple desires. One is to have a very sustainable recipe that is more environmentally friendly. And I'll discuss the pros and cons of that because um, we're a little hypocritical, kind of mixing soil, bagging it, and shipping it. So sustainability is very important. But our goal when we started, the recycled logo as far as Build-A-Soil, that's because we all recycled soil. We would keep it not necessarily that we were recycling our ingredient to be the most sustainable in the world, but we all also cared about, probably even more than the carbon footprint, the treatment ethically of the animals and not giving our money to the Monsanto subsidiaries. And so the desire to like not use bone meal or not use a particular ingredient oftentimes came from who it was funding and what those animals were fed. Like if a cow was fed Roundup sprayed crops, and then their waste is deemed approved for organic use. We said, we don't want it. That's not good enough for us. And so when it came to peat moss, we trusted cute um, because he said that was the best quality. And when we did soil testing, eventually, we found that when we made the same recipe with coco core, it didn't hold as much nutrients. It's cation exchange capacity. It's ability to magnetically hold the nutrients was lesser than. Um, and that's a big benefit when it comes to hydro because now you can flush it out fairly easily and you can load it back up with what it needs. But in soil, that was one. Now, arguably, it's not terribly different. So you could still make a great soil with coco coir, but coco coir is mined on, it mined, it is procured from islands and other places far from here. And it is one of those crops that now can be grown non-organically. And those chemically grown coconuts can be harvested and sold as organic cocoa core because any waste from a farming industry is, is deemed approved for organic use. So now you're questioning where you're getting the cocoa core from. And depending on the continent, or I'm sorry, depending on the location you get it from, it could be near the ocean and it could be very salty. Um, and in organics, they don't buffer it with the chemicals. So a lot of the cocoa core that you buy is already buffered with um nitrate, or it's loaded with different minerals to offset some of the challenges that cocoa has. And so an organic soil company, they can't just go buy the pre-charged cocoa because it has chemicals. Um, And so then you have to use raw cocoa. And raw cocoa is a little bit more neutral on the pH. And while pH isn't mentioned a lot when we talk about organic growing, it's important. It's just that the soil is normally the derivative of the pH, not the water. So talking about it every day is not as important, right? You can't change it like you can change the hydro water. That dramatically changes the uptake of your plant. But... Cocoa core is a little more neutral. The benefit of peat moss is it's very acidic. And to that acidity, we can load it with calcium that's alkaline. And that brings us to the pH that we desire. And that also creates a situation where the plant has access to a lot of calcium. And it's now in the target pH where if we're starting neutral already, we have a little bit less choices as far as how many minerals we can load it with. So that was part of the concern. Personally for me, because I loved peat moss, made these recipes the way we run Build-A-Soil is to teach what we do. And so for us to offer a cocoa mix was disingenuine. And now we're only getting to the point where we've had a lot of customers request it. We have data on it. We know that it works. We're considering releasing a cocoa version. We also have some wood fibers. In the past, they were very alkaline and they were more of like a money saver. But there's a couple of products in the market that are very acidic, made from wood, and they're very sustainable because they grow very young trees and they harvest them into a wood pulp that's more like peat moss. But those rob nitrogen, so you can only use a percentage. So the most straightforward for the home gardener is to use peat moss. And then what happens is occasionally, they'll go in a gardening forum and they'll tell them peat moss is ruining the world. And so then they go, oh, I don't wanna do that. I'd rather use cocoa core or whatever. So now the burden of knowledge is that cocoa is freighted in using fossil fuel on big tankers that are locked up because of trade war issues and coming from other countries and that's volatile. And then when you get it, it may be salty, maybe not, maybe there's some, it's not as straightforward where peat moss overseas across the pond, they burn it for energy and they have very small amounts of peat moss. So using it is not sustainable where here in the United States, we get it from Canada and the Canadian peat moss association has a very tight lock to the point where I can only get so much allocation of peat because they only mine so much and it restricts what we can produce. Last year we made about 10,000 cubic yards of soil and we're slated to go to over 20,000 cubic yards of soil this year peat moss is going to be a real issue for us as far as availability. But as far as hurting the earth, that availability is capped because the Canadian government won't let them mine it in a non-sustainable fashion. And so obviously it's not the greatest to go dig up portions of our earth, but the peat moss is arguably less of an environmental impact than the cocoa core, depending on how you look at it. And either way, none of them are as sustainable as making your own on-farm product. And so ways to do that, that Coot talked about back in the day would be to make your own leaf mold. rake the leaves in your yard, you put them in a black trash bag and let them sit there for a year and they turn into black leaf mold compost, which would be a good suitable replacement for peat moss. Um, And then the other alternative would be to, we've considered this a build a soil and we're still looking into the numbers, but setting up a worm farm that only recycles cardboard and paper. And that way you have kind of a a lesser nutrition worm casting that could act like a a peat moss, if you will. Um, But peat moss is ancient and it has a lot of benefits and it has biology and it makes a very, very good soil. So I hope that sharing this data with you, at least will let you know, no matter how you make potting soil, kind of a hypocrite as far as sustainability. The better answer is we keep our soil. We don't throw it in the trash. So once you make this, it could be a lifetime that you're keeping this soil that should ease in the burden a little bit. Um, the old way was just to literally throw the soil away every single time and get new soil. And the whole idea was, well, um, we don't want to make a mistake. So just throw it away, buy new soil. And as long as the profit was there, it didn't matter. Now we're all wanting to make sure that we're more sustainable, but also um, the profit margin is pretty tough in farming. So we can't just all afford to throw everything away. We've gotta be intelligent. One of the ways that um, organic farming can win is that it has ways if you're intelligent and build an infrastructure and assets that allow you to manage your farm without buying it again every year, you can start to create profit margin for yourself while improving the land. So um, we use peat moss. And there's also pit moss, which you mentioned. We just found that it doesn't produce as quality of a soil. I really like the idea of using it. It's lightweight for like hanging flower baskets. There's huge benefits to using it, but it's essentially looks like, it looks like you took shredded newspaper or shredded paper from your, literally from your paper shredder. Because of that, it's off-putting. Like there's ink on it, you can see. And I'm sure it's soy-based ink, so it's not bad for potting soil, but. It doesn't scream the highest top shelf quality. It screams recycled. And so we're wanting to work more with pit moss, but the blends that we've made rob so much nitrogen that now we need to offset that, and it, it's not quite as sustainable in that regard. Um, but the future is that Build-A-Soil is going to be putting a lot of research into the wood pulp, the cocoa core, and the pit moss to find recipes that we can use different percentages of these not to be so dependent on peat moss. So, hope that answers your question.
0: Lots of good information there for sure. So your first 33 is base, next 33, you mentioned a compost or some people use worm castings. Yep. Now there are several different types of, of compost, right? Which one do you generally recommend and are there any that should be avoided?
1: Yeah, this is a difficult question. And this is what's kept organics out of the mainstream for a long time. What I mean by that is if you're in California and you're on the grow forum and you're talking to a guy in Florida you can tell him use this nutrient, use RO water, pH it, and use this cocoa core or this rock wool or this bucket of deep water culture. And they can produce ideally, basically exactly the same as what you're producing. And then you can have an intelligent conversation back and forth about the differences. Uh, the environment might be slightly different, but you can game that, right? ACs and humidifiers and everything. So now we literally created the duplicated to grow environment. In organics, as best as we could do is say, we'll find some local compost now the guy in california and the guy in florida are having night and day different conversations and they're trying to help each other out and have no idea how to do it so compost quality is of paramount importance and that's what kept a lot of people away from making their own soil they would go find some compost on craigslist they'd make a potting soil fall in the coots recipe and all their plants would die so there's a few things to consider one you can find local compost and a great way to test it is put a plant into it you can mix it down in your soil recipe at a 33 percent recipe you could go a little lower and you could put three or four containers one with ten percent one with thirty percent one with twenty percent and just see how they do um within a week you're going to know a lot more than had you not done that however a lot of times if you find a big compost yard they should have a lab test on it and they can share it with you what i've found is most of these yards do not know what their own compost test means and so they share it with you and they just hope you don't either and then everybody goes well it's tested i should use it and then they buy it and it doesn't work and they go i don't know i bought it, it was tested Well, test it for what? It's typically like the local compost. For instance, there is so much compost around me. I would love to use it all because then I wouldn't be paying freight on better compost. But when you get it tested at the lab, it has potassium that is maybe 10 times the phosphorus level and sodium that matches it. So it's alkaline and it's full of stuff that we're trying to keep out of our soil recipe. So if you use any more than five or 10%, like the the 33% we're suggesting, it'll just fry your plants. That's what unfortunately a lot of municipal compost is. So if you're fortunate enough where you have a gardening club locally, or you have people that are active like Michigan, California, there's a lot of states that do have some premium inputs. You're going to have to go by word of mouth. Like who's got the best compost that everybody knows about is the goods. Then from there, you can probably trust it a lot better. And that's how gardening's always been done. You trust the recommendations you're given. You find the guy who's got the good plants, the good nursery, the good soil. What Build a Soil did to build a business is used testing and data to take some of that guessing out. So we don't have to trust, we can verify. And so I would recommend you learn a little bit about that. You can always do a test on your compost. Um, If you're commercial and you're looking to buy compost, I would test it before I buy it. If you're just a home gardener, you can read the test that they have and maybe understand it better. And we could do a whole episode just on that. But one of the things you can do is typically worm castings is a safer bet worm casting will reduce the problems. And what I mean by that is if it's locally made compost from people just dumping green waste and they compost it, it could have some residual herbicides in it and the compost may be too young. It could have dewormer from manures where once the worms have worked it, even if that was originally in there, it's usually ripped to shreds and the biology and enzymes make it safer. It's one of the magic of the worm. So I find a lot of people use worm castings in their recipes because it seems to be less wild as far as quality. And then here's the other weird thing that happens: when you go to a large-scale worm casting producer, they typically make a casting that is not—it's not very rich in mater- in nutrient. It's so quickly made, which means that it's unlikely to cause a problem in your soil recipe. So, worm castings often is the default for a long time, people would just guess and do 50, 50. So for their one part, 33.33% of compost, they would go half compost, half worm castings and they'd make their recipe. All I'm gonna leave you with is that if you're gonna get compost and you've never heard of the brand before, like we recommend Malibu and Oli Mountain, not because they're the best in the world, but because they've been proven to be standardized so that you can make a recipe at known percentages and it will duplicate what we're experiencing. And that works really, really well. But if you don't have access to that, um, when I was on the forums, historically, Coast of Maine was a great brand on the East Coast. Malibu and Oldie Mountain was good on the on the West Coast. And if you couldn't find those, what you would do is just reach out online and go through what I mentioned, the, uh, just growing a plant in it. I mean, if you put a tomato plant straight compost then it grows, you're probably fine. If you dilute it percentages and it does well, maybe you found something great. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't always need a lab. I don't want to paint this picture that you have to be a scientist to grow organically. But I do not want to to put it lightly that if you're making soil and you're counting on it, the local compost could be the thing that, that bites you. So make sure that's good.
0: Okay. And then the last 33 is aeration, and there are several options for that. You already talked about some yep. perlite, rice holes, lava rock, pumice, biochar, right? Can you talk to us, get a little bit of more details yeah. in regards to some of those things, kind of, you know, their benefits, if anything should be avoided or, or be aware of? Yeah, let's talk about it. So
1: aeration. Originally, what we did on the forums is we would look for something more natural than perlite. The reason was we found that perlite was obsidian, which is not an unlimited source. It's like a black, beautiful rock. And they mine it, and then what they do is they run it uh, through a factory with a lot of energy, and that puffs it like popcorn. And so it expands, and that's what you see is the white, very lightweight material. Now, if you understand that most of the products we buy on the shelves are, are basically we're paying for the freight. Like if you go to a grocery store, most of the cost of that didn't go to the farmer. It went in the freight getting it there, and then we try and put as much on one truck as possible. So freight ends up being the biggest portion of what we pay as far as a hidden tax. And when it comes to soil, it is a loss leader at a lot of hydro stores and it's heavy and it's hard to get it there. They have to buy a whole pallet at a time to justify the freight. So perlite is like a game changer. When they started adding perlite, not only is it really fluffy for the cells starting thousands of seeds in, the, in these commercial greenhouses and lightweight to send all the starts to Home Depot for everybody's garden, but it's also a whole bag of soils pretty light. You can sell two, three cubic foot in one bag, throw it over your shoulder because it's peat moss and it's perlite. Well, the idea in living soil was we wanted to keep the soil forever. So that's why when we started using larger volumes, but we also looked at the aeration. And when you keep soil around forever, the perlite starts to break down right away into powder and it starts to float up to the top of your recipe when you're watering. And it doesn't lend itself to keeping uh, without impaction over a long period of time. So we we were wishing to get away from that for a number of reasons, not sustainable, not really a real mineral, like it was puffed up. Um, even though arguably it holds a lot of air, like it has some huge benefits to soil. Uh, But what started to come out in the forums was lava rock is very porous. It's a microbial condo. It's made from the minerals. And where are good, where's good food made in the world? Hawaii, Pacific Northwest, anywhere where volcanic activity created really abundantly mineral rich soils. So we thought, oh, we're using lava rock. And we started buying lava rock. And the red one is more iron rich. And the black one might be more rich. I'm not positive, but potentially manganese. But at least less iron. And so we were playing with recipes there. And it makes a pretty good soil. But I will tell you, the lava rock, it's heavy. And it's not quite as good at being an aeration amendment more than just a drainage. It doesn't hold as much oxygen in the soil. Now it works and it works well, but the learning curve from building a soil, like if you were to just go to a healthy organic farm, dig out their black rich soil and put it in a pot and try and grow and now in a container. That container, the biggest challenge, even though it might test well, is the physical characteristics will make it almost impossible to, to keep the the air and the water in there enough to make the plant grow. And it's just going to be overwatered right away. It's going to get stagnant in areas. That's why potting soil is mimicking the native soil, but to be in a container, it has to be different. So we we put some lava rock in a bucket of water and it would sink. We did some character. We did like some research on the porosity. And pumice, it floats in water. It's closer to what perlite does, but it's real in the sense that it's just mined from the earth. People use it in other industries. So there was a lot of data, like they use it in the beauty industry for foot, you know, lotions and scrubs and all sorts of stuff to be um, uh, to help with skin. And because of that, there's lots of testing done on it to make sure it's safe. So it was really logical to go that direction. Um, also, people build water filters with like biochar and pumice and all sorts of weird things. So Pumice became a go-to, it's lighter weight, which means it didn't ruin the freight and it held air and it's a good microbial condo, which we need the bacteria to live in all those little space. Um, it has so much surface area, a lot can happen there. And then from there we thought, well, rice holes they use, because it's lightweight and it replaces perlite because it adds drainage. The reason why is it's made of silica. And so all the growers on the forums were like, man, we're all buying silica. That'd be great if we could just put some rice holes in there and add silica. And what kept us from using 100% rice holes was the fact we wanted to keep soil forever. So you're thinking, well, if I no-till this soil and the rice holes are eaten by the worms over the first year or two and they're gone, where's my aeration? So the goal was, okay, of the 33% aeration, let's use like 10 or 15% of that as rice holes. So worst case, we still have a lot of pumice in there. Best case, we get some fluff out of the rice holes and we get some long-term silica. So that was it. And people started saying, you know what? I'll do whatever I have, pumice, rice hulls. I'll use 100% of one, 50-50, didn't matter. As long as I used it as one third of my recipe. Now, I will tell you, you can use less compost. Some of our best recipes are closer to 20% compost. They tend to, they, they tend to balance out much better. And then you can add minerals and amendments more pointedly to your recipe. So the old Kootz recipe at 33% that's because he made his own vermicompost with his own amendments in it. He was done at that point. A lot of us, when we're unsure of the quality of compost, we're adding more to that. So uh, sometimes all you have to do is reduce the percentage a little bit and add maybe a little more aeration and a little more uh, peat moss, and you can make a spicier compost work very, very well. And what's easy about organics is, if you didn't overdo it, you can always come back later and brew a tea or top dress and give it more later. So um, kind of like an athlete can only eat so much protein at one time. We can only front load our soil with so much nutrients at once before we upset the balance. Eventually, if this is sustainable, we're going to have to come in and intelligently add more as we go. So that became the goal. Um, other things variation, you mentioned biochar, biochar holds about 10 times its weight in water. And so because of that, I try not to categorize it as aeration because if someone used 33% of that, instead of one of the others, it could cause a catastrophe. It's very carbon rich. One of the things you can learn about organics is that carbon is very important. It feeds the biology that then breaks down and makes the nutrients available to the plant. But too much carbon can rob nitrogen and that can upset the balance. And so there's this carbon to nitrogen ratio that makes good compost and just front loading your soil with too much biochar can be a problem. So good rule of thumb, if you're not familiar with the biochar is to use maybe maximum 5%. There's definitely times you can use more, but without knowing for sure, uh, I would just say it's all one third, make my base, and you can add an extra percentage of biochar to that. Um, But I I more consider the aeration to be pumice, perlite, and rice holes or lava rock. Those are the four main. Now, some people have used pea gravel. Some people literally take hydroton, the clay balls from their old hydroponic grow, and they go, well, I don't wanna waste them. I'm gonna put that as an aeration. It kind of works as a drainage, as taking up space in your recipe, but it's the hydrogen clay is so smooth, there's no porosity there. And in our experience, it just doesn't work very well. So um, take that for what it's worth.
0: About about ver- vermiculite?
1: Vermiculite is something that we don't use here, but it is of benefit. And part of the reasons why is I just don't want my crew breathing it and dealing with it. Like, eliminating perlite and vermiculite is fantastic for the crew. The air quality is already bad enough. One of our goals for 2022 is to improve the air quality in our soil mixing building that we just built. And so keeping some of those ingredients out is always a benefit, but vermiculite has a very high CEC. It's very lightweight and people use it to hold water. So it becomes more like biochar in that sense. So for instance, let's say you're a producer and you're gonna have 100,000 little seedlings that you're starting and you're gonna sell them to Home Depot eventually. If you're growing something that is, it needs to be dry, you would wanna do their peat moss perlite recipe because you could water every day and it would just dry out. If you're wanting something to hold some moisture for a little while so you can lower the irrigation and, this, and the plants you're growing don't mind being a little more moist or they prefer it, you're gonna get the recipe with a little more vermiculite in it. Um, so from a soil building perspective, it has textural qualities as far as holding more moisture, but the one reason why I would consider adding it to a recipe right now, the way build does it is it has a very high CEC, and so the, the difference in potting soil is that potting soil, while it has cation exchange, it's not really used. It's not really the same. In soil, the cation exchange is based off of clay, minerals that have broken down in the organic matter for thousands of years. So it's very, very real to base your whole farm off of that math. But a potting soil, that math is more of like a gut check. It's not as accurate. Um, so, we haven't ventured to the vermiculite, but if we wanted more nutrient holding capability, biochar, vermiculite, uh, things like that can potentially hold more in your recipe, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. And then after you have your 33 33 33 mix organic amendments should be added as well so microbes will work to break down those organic amendments turn them into nutrients that the plant will take i've been using the build a soil craft blend the past several grows and my plants love it <laughs> yep. what are the options for initial amendments that could be added to the 33 33 33 mix so i'll go over what coots recommends and i'll also
1: give you some rules of thumb to go by so that you're not blindly following a recipe A lot of this is based on Steve Solomon. So Steve Solomon, the intelligent gardener, has got a great book. He's in Tasmania. Um, I was talking to him right at the onset of COVID, and he's just been a very – he's been inspirational to me and been willing to take my phone calls. And so I'm always asking him questions about some of this stuff. And he had this three-way lime mix that he used, and it was like dolomite lime, agricultural lime, and gypsum, or something like that. And so Coot referenced the three-way lime mix, but he always wanted to add uh, glacial rock dust, and eventually – change that to be basalt and that's because it's a volcanic rock dust. So Kootz's recipe was, hey, if soil is made of rock dust ground up in organic matter, that's what he wanted to duplicate. So the rule of thumb for the Koot's recipe across the board was a half a cup of each one of your nutrients you're adding per cubic foot. A cubic foot came to be known as about seven and a half gallons. If you look online, its mathematic formula is anywhere from 6.8 to 7.5 Depending on, and what I mean by that is you can fill a perfect 12 inch by 12 inch by 12 inch box. You can make it exactly one cubic foot. You can fill it perfectly with peat moss and call it one cubic foot, but then you can just press it down with your hands. And now is that really a cubic foot or is there room for more? So uh, we use seven and a half gallons for a cubic foot. And if you add a half cubic foot of each one of your amendments, you should be safe. Maximum that we like to see is up to three cups. The coots recipe is only one and a half cups of nutrients. You can always add more later. I think less is more and that's the way to go. Then on the mineral side, you could add up to about a cup or two of your favorite mineral, totaling no more than four to six cups of minerals. Four cups of minerals per cubic foot is the coots recipe. Half of it, two of those is rock dust. Most people would mix some glacial and some basalt or you just use all basalt. The other two was a mixture of your calciums. Very, very important. Number one mineral for plant growth is calcium, calcium, calcium. It's everything. So he would usually add oyster shell flour and that was the calcium side um, or an ag lime or a mixture of the two. So that's what we started doing. We would mix in two cups of basalt, uh, one cup of some oyster shell flour and one cup of some gypsum. And funny story, when I first started this, I didn't know there was a difference between rock dust And he was encouraging me to buy local. So I I messaged Coot and I said, all I could find was calcium sulfate and and they can't even sell it at the local farm store. So they told me it's gonna be like 50 cents a bag. There were 50 pound bags. I was blown away. So I bought a whole bunch of them, brought them home and I used that four cups of gypsum solely as my rock dust. And it was one of the better recipes I'd ever made. So that's when I learned that overdoing calcium, especially gypsum was not necessarily a bad thing. Um, But to round it out, we wanted uh, the Koots recipe specifically, one and a half cups of amendments, four cups of minerals. And so what I'm telling you is like, if, if you have alfalfa meal, you could add a half cup of that to this recipe and it would be fine. But his recipe is one half cup kelp meal, one half cup crustacean meal, and one half cup neem or karanja, better yet a mixture of the two. That's the fertilizer. And if you learn about it, a... a Neem or karanja, that's a seed from a tree. So that's a seed meal. Soy is another seed. Cotton is another seed. The reason why we don't use soy or cotton is they're the most GMO pesticide sprayed products there are in the world. And then they're totally approved for organic use. And so you could be growing in Roundup without even knowing it. That's part of the reasons why we avoid some of those. And the karanja is a nitrogen fixing tree. It's, an un, it's good for the earth, okay? And it's very clean on heavy metals and everything else. So adding that in as your seed meal, that's great. The kelp meal is for all the micronutrients. The entire periodic table comes from the ocean and the kelp has hormones because it grows it grows feet in a day. It is one of the fastest growing plants. So kelp, big reason, all the trace minerals, all the magic from the ocean. Neem or caronda, a seed meal. That's where the protein's gonna come from. That's like if you're vegan or a vegetarian, you need the protein from the nuts and the seeds and all that, not just from the from the lettuce. There's none in there. Then the last one was crustacean meal. And crustacean means a mixture of like shrimp or crab. The reason why Coote recommended that was very simple. It was calcium, carbon, it was loaded in calcium. It had some protein from the leftover meat that might've been in the crustacean, right? Had some phosphorus, but really it had this advantage also that the shells are made out of chitin. And if you don't know, chitin is the second most abundant substance on the earth. First is cellulose, next is chitin chitin, I used to call chitin. I had no idea what it was. C-H-I-T-I-N. <laughs> uh, you got to be chitiny. We used to joke until we learned it was chitin. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't as funny then. Uh, but chitin is something that plants have come to use, potentially activating their systemic acquired response, their S-A-R, their their defense system, kind of like when we talk about having an immune system. And the reason why is insects are also made of chitin. So it. I guess it would... Makes sense that if chitin's around, maybe that means insects are around and there's some sort of defense response there. But there's benefit. And we knew that. So his recipe was simple, but arguably not simple in his choice for why. So to keep it basic, half cup of crustacean meal, half cup of kelp meal, half cup of neem cake or neem seed meal. It's the same thing, just words. That's one and a half cups of total amendments per cubic foot. A lot of people just doubled that thinking, ah, if that's good, twice as good. But what we learned since is that kelp, less is more. It has arsenic in it. It has lots of trace minerals in it. It's better to keep that one at a lower level. You could double the others if you'd like, if you know you have a really nutrient hungry plant. Um, One of the other things that a lot of people did is they would add their favorite extra. They would copy the coots recipe and they'd say, you know what, I'm gonna add a half cup alfalfa and I'm gonna add maybe a half cup of fishbone meal or guano or whatever their favorite thing was that they couldn't not use. And in that way, the Coots recipe is really the, the infinity base recipe that everybody uses and then soups up according to their own needs. Like if you're going to go in really small containers, you might up the nutrients a bit and top dress. If you're going in huge containers, you might just keep it standard. If you have a local compost, you might lower the percentage, but it was such a working model. I think it's what took off like wildfire out there for people to just trust that they can make a soil from scratch that would actually work. Right. I mean, when you're making something from a recipe online, like for food. you Typically, you want at least one review saying, hey, this didn't taste awful. It did work. And then you go, okay, cool. I'll try the recipe. That's what happened. Everybody had success in the Kootz recipe. So,
0: I have to ask, like I mentioned, I use Build-A-Soil Craft Blend, right? And I swear, and you probably know this, 24 to 48 hours after watering it in, it's like this putrid smell. Like the smell is just... I thought somebody was dead in the room or something at one point. (laughs) What is that horrible smell? So after top dress? Because I don't get any odor out of it. Now, I know there's odor in it if it gets wet or
1: if I brew it, right? Yeah, So you water Um, it in. So typically what I do, though, is I I wiggle it into my mulch layer. Now it's covered in worm castings and mulch, and so the odor just typically can't be a thing. But um, what it is is there's crustacean meal, and if you ever smelled some old crab, I mean, get pretty gnar when it's breaking down, right? And biology that's of decay – is what's going to make those nutrients available. There's also fish meal. There's fish bone meal in there, um, and then there's camelina meal, and it's a weird one because it's a wild flax, and it's kind of like mustard in the sense that it smells unique, and it's got like this the oil that's in it because they don't deoil it first. It's almost like uh, like linseed oil or something. Like it has like a turpentiney, like it has a weird odor, and so you can you can bind the protein. It's rich in protein that wants to kick off that fermentation. You've got neem in there, which smells like garlic mushroom gnar, like it's just weird. Neem cake is gnarly if you're not used to it. It Smells gross. And you combine that with like the ocean stuff and then you get it wet. (laughs) And we did not build this to be a potpourri of good smells. We built it solely with the intent of making a diverse fix-it mix, if you will. Uh, uh, What can I add to my soil without having to guess every time? And the craft one actually came from a buddy. His last name's Kraft. We didn't call it Kraft because it was crafted his last name is Kraft and he grew a lot of plants and he's like, bro, can you just mix all that shit together so I don't have to do it and be a good seller? And it's one of our best-selling products. And what I did do is I took his idea and instead of just blindly mixing it together, I measured the NPK of all of them, put them equal by weight. And then I did some testing to make sure P was above K and it actually made some sense from a soil testing background. And it's our favorite product. We use it on the vegetable farm because I mean, for us to get two bags of fish meal, two bags of kelp. It's just, there's a lot, then the mice can get into it. Then you have to unroll the bags. So bringing a tote of craftlin to the farm, it's just all in one scoop. And now we can tell anybody that works on the farm, if you're doing a bed, grab one big scoop, 18 pounds and amend the bed with it. And if it's a longer season crop, we can say do double and it makes it easy. And so then all of a sudden growers were telling us, even before we knew it was gonna be popular, that it was their favorite product. And so when you're researching amendments, we mentioned a half cup of each, no more than three cups. The craft blend gets confusing because there's minerals in there as well. So I'd recommend most people have kind of followed our recipe that's on the bag there, what to use. But um, you can go a little above, like if you take three cups of nutrients and the four cups of minerals per cubic foot, that's about seven combined cups. I would say be less than that with the craft blend because it's not as high a percentage of minerals as if you made the coots mix from scratch. And because of that, we use craft blend as our supplementary, meaning we'll make soil according to the recipes, and then craft blend will now, from now on, be the amendment two. Because we've already front-loaded with so much minerals, the minerals don't necessarily go anywhere, and the, like the basalt's not gonna disappear in the first cycle. So now the craft blend becomes an, a great addition. But where craft blend came from, if you look up Steve Solomon, he would teach you how to make an organic fertilizer mix, and he would recommend that you added something with phosphorus, something that had the seed meal. And he would also add something that had like the kelp or alfalfa, like that had the trace minerals. And so it was a way to construct a complete recipe. If you weren't just buying something off the shelf, that's where craft blend came from. Um, and the immediate reaction growers get is because it also has some calcium and some magnesium in it, which y'all know if you're in hydro, it's like CalMag will fix a lot of things. Right. And so immediately when they water it in or top dress, before the biology even has a chance to break some stuff down, they're getting some mineral release right away, which is very helpful oftentimes. Um, yeah, craft Blend is one of my favorites. So thanks for bringing it up.
0: Yeah, it makes it really, really easy. I mean, you mentioned what you could do for initial amendments, but you could just do the craft Blend, right? If you want to keep it simple, just...
1: You absolutely can. Now, here's the thing. When I used to go to the gardening store and try and buy like a pre-blended organic, you know, there's a lot of companies that have individuals like you could go buy alfalfa or you could go buy fish bone meal. But when it got to the blends, I didn't like it. And here's why. If you go to the local gardening store or the hardware store and you grab an organic blended fertilizer, all purpose, or tomato fertilizer, or rose fertilizer, they'll even put pictures of roses on there as if the rose has a particular diet that it prefers. That's not the case. And so I don't want people to be misled that a tomato needs a specific fertilizer. Medicinal plants, annual flowering plants, tomatoes, they require the same thing. So there's nothing special about them. Obviously, we all feel our chosen plant that we prefer to grow is going to be special to us. Some people love tomatoes, and it's the only plant that matters. But just because of that doesn't mean we need a special fertilizer for it. And so then you'd flip the box over, and you'd start reading it. Well, guess what they did? To get it organic listed, you had to use ingredients that are approved for organic use. They don't have to be organic. And when you read it, it reads like... What has the highest profit margin now that I understand it? So you read it and you go, oh, cottonseed meal, soybean meal. Uh, uh, what is it, the other one that's really popular that's uh, highly contaminated? Uh, cotton and soy are two of the big ones. But then you'll see bone meal and blood meal and all these waste sources. So essentially, if you're a fertilizer manufacturer, you'd be like, hey, you got some waste? Can I have it for free? Perfect. And you'd clean up the shop for them, handle the freight. That's how a lot of these fertilizer businesses came to be. And so when I'm reading a box that says cottonseed meal, magnesium, sulfate bone meal, I'm just reading cheapest shit on the market with the widest profit margin. And when you think about cotton, it's not fed to animals. So the, it can be literally sprayed at harvest to make clothing out of. And then as soon as you do that and you've taken what's made for cotton, all the waste is now considered approved for organic use. It can be very toxic. And so now people are caring more. And obviously there's been huge instances where some of that waste killed big gardens and they had to do research about how it happened. So we're all learning. But um, when you go to the typical garden store, comparing it to Craftland, night and day difference in the quality of inputs. And that's why we continue to produce it. It's a nightmare to make. I mean, truckloads of materials from all over the country have to land and be here and all 13 ingredients or something have to be on the ground at one time and multiple thousands of pounds. Then we have to weigh them and mix them. And I kind of wish we hadn't done it, but at the end of the day, eventually it might get big enough where we can have maybe a machine that helps us with all of the blending of it. But, um, it's really, really good. So
0: I feel like we should also quickly touch upon container size. It seems with organics, it's often said that the bigger the pot size, the better. Talk to us about pot size.
1: Yeah, it's a bigger buffer. And what I mean by that is, if you're in a small container, it's doable. So when I first started learning, Gaskanistan um, was on the forum and showing his growing. A lot of us borrowed from the vision we saw. He had like a room that was full of like Home Depot buckets. there'd be like 100 of them in there. And they were just stacked bamboo poles everywhere. It looked like you're going to gouge an eye out just walking in there. But it was in five gallons. And he would literally just dump it out on a tarp, reamend it and plug it back in and go. And I'm like, dude, that is epic. And around that time, a lot of people were saying, well, what happens if I just don't dump my soil out? So um, they were just making compost teas and keeping the same five-gallon there and planting right back into it. And it became clear that if we grew a pretty big plant, a five-gallon container was almost root-bound and cannibalized to the point where reamending it or recycling it was probably the better way to go. And so to offset that, we didn't want all the labor. Like literally dumping 100 pots on the ground in a tarp, shoveling it, and putting it back in was – it's, it's no small task. And while it sounds great on paper, when it's the fifth time you've done it and you just don't want to do it anymore, you're looking for a better way. And the no-till became the goal. And Mountain Organics, Blue Jay Way at the time, um, was starting to do back-to-back no-till cycles and everybody was increasing container size. A lot of guys were growing like 100-gallon pots. And then we wanted to see how far that went. And it seems like there's some magic somewhere around container size that we're still learning like a big container, but still getting close to maxing out the volume creates a better finished product than one that's so big you never even come close. Um, but what we found is that doubling your container size usually increased your yield by about 60%. And there's a lot of studies that, that show why. We found that plants are intelligent and because the nutrients aren't immediately available in soil, they're dependent upon the speed that biology can feed them at. And in a five gallon container, if we consider it like a bioreactor, we put organic amendments in and biology breaks them down and feeds them to the plant, when our plant really starts growing because we get the the grow room dialed, the grow lights are good, or we're in the sun and it's just raging, good environment, greenhouse, whatever. Now the biology just all of a sudden can't keep up. Your plant is, is growing faster than it can keep up with. The way to bypass that is to give it more soil. So now the root, instead of being circling on itself, looking for new food, can just go further away from itself, looking for new food. In fact, the world record tomato grower, he would do this. He would make his own compost. He would make his holes, he would mulch it and he would irrigate it. But then he'd go plant Vetch, a nitrogen fixing plant, like eight to 10 feet behind his rows that would grow and fix nitrogen in the ground. When the plants got bigger in their growing season, their roots would tap into the nitrogen the Vetch produced and then hit a surge of growth and they would never run out. And so the bigger container size started being the mimicking of the earth of what would produce more yield. I mean, you can see, the guys in cali would put 400 gallon containers out grow 99 plants and they're all 10 pounds plus so we knew bigger could be bigger but as far as indoor goes if you're calling a four x four space your space a lot of people were hesitant to add more soil they're like five gallons a big container that's plenty big but when you do it for a while it just seems so small you look around you're like well i can fit way more in the same four by four if i'm growing four plants in five gallon buckets what's the difference if i just make them 30 gallons it's still a four x four grow tent and what we found was the difference was significant in a 30 gallon or hundred gallons, something that really was more soil per canopy. So five gallons times four, that's only 20 gallons under your grow light. But if you put 30 gallons, now you're talking 120 gallons in the same four by four space. And now you just didn't run out of food. You didn't have to be an expert at feeding and making the right tea. And then when you were done, you used less than half of what was available. So you could arguably guess with some craft blend and still have a pretty balanced soil. And so what we tried to do just like life is take our highs and take our lows and flatten them to a curve that was more manageable. A big container of soil makes the big harvest. It's just like this. It's not like you're depleting the soil. And when you flatten that curve, it seems like everybody gets better results. Now are there people that are using smaller containers and living soil and doing well? Yes. A lot of times they'll use maybe a little bit less light intensity grow really high quality without driving the plant so fast it outpaces biology or they will flip to flower significantly sooner or they will put it out on the patio when it's just a small tomato plant they're basically not trying to overgrow what they're using and so i think in living soil what we need to do is picture the final size of our plant and try and match the soil somewhat similarly to that as above so below and there's no breaking that rule when it comes to organics so to fill a 4x4 canopy completely, full of yield, I think the best way is to fill it full of soil. Here's the, the other side of it though. When you're brand new, if you really don't know about watering, you could easily underwater or overwater a 100-gallon plant much easier than a 5-gallon. A 5-gallon or a 10-gallon, you can lift it and you can go, oh, that's way too heavy. Even I can tell that. I'm brand new, but that seems way heavier than day one. That probably has plenty of water where when you have a hundred gallon or several thirties, you're kind of slapping them and lifting them. And like, I don't really know. (laughs) And so then it becomes that you must know that your watering style is working. And we have some rules of thumb for that, but that really does determine your container size. A lot of people will ask me how to choose their container size. And I always recommend maxing out as much as you're comfortable with. That's always the better answer. Um, The caveat is learning to water. So in a four by four space, I love Doing 15 to 30 gallons times four, or a hundred gallon, or a or a big planter. Now, in a 4x4, I prefer a 3 by 3 planter if I'm going to use something square. Then I can step a foot in and reach to the back. I can have some airflow where the tent's not right on my my grow container. Um, so a 5x5 tent would be great for a 4x4. But these are rules of thumb. You can break every one of these rules. The reason why experts can break rules is they know the consequences of that and they offset it. So If you're in a small container and that's all you can do, keep your light intensity a little lower, keep your plants a little smaller before you go into flower. And I think that will make significant quality differences. In organics, we're not trying to just maximize yield. We're trying to increase yield so long as quality is brought up with it. But if there's a cost in quality, we'd prefer not to do that. Um, And that's what we found. So I hope that people listening to this may be encouraged to go up slightly in container size. I find that 10 to 15 gallons is the minimum to start no-tilling, in my opinion. You can definitely do fives, but it's not as easy. Our last 10 by 10 series are five-gallon containers. We had three of them on a drip system. Um, they were ugly the whole way and harder to deal with and took more daily interaction, but they produced what's in, you know what's finished product now. is You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's arguably just as good, if not better, than the other ones. But what was better than the other was the yield and the effort. I got way more yield for way less effort and to me, that's why bigger containers is very attractive. So
0: lots of good information there for sure. So we talked about building the soil, you know, 33, 33, 33, adding the initial amendments. Yep. Now these initial amendments, they're going to break down and the plant will uptake the nutrients and the soil can get depleted. So oftentimes additional feedings are required throughout the grow. When does the first feeding typically, I know it's going to depend on pot size and stuff like that, but generally speaking, when do you first look to do that first feeding and what does it consist of?
1: So there's a couple ways to look at this. Um, When we first started, most of us had bare soil on top, meaning no mulch, no top dressing, just rich organic soil that we mixed according to these recipes, put it in the container and you go. And what we would all do is before the plant showed any hunger, just maybe once a week, or a few weeks after we got started and the plants were visibly growing happily and we know they're stable now. Then we just brew compost teas. And back then, um, microbe man, Tim Wilson, great guy, totally transparent with info, he would geek out. He'd be like, you need 1.34% of this and what? So we were all trying those recipes. And essentially the most basic recipe was worm castings, molasses, and you'd bubble it for 24 to 48 hours and you'd water it in. And there's a couple things that happened from that. One is we made a lot of microbes and when we poured them in the soil, even if they did nothing but die, their dead microbe bodies would feed the soil. So it didn't have to be perfect. And then, you know, the molasses has some trace minerals in there and the compost had some NPK. So making these compost teas once a week or so usually got great results, but we wanted more. And so what we started to find out that is in organic farming, you would apply what they call a side dress or a top dress. And there's some implications to what that meant. But essentially, the way the forest does it, if we're trying to mimic nature, is the forest drops all its leaves and it slowly starts to break down and animals die and bugs die and everything. And that is eventually feeds the soil and it takes time. And fungus is what really built our forests here and built our soil. And worms eventually kind of took over and they're now part of that process, but they were an invader. Either way, worms build soil, fungus build soil. And so when we started looking at how we would wanna feed it, we said, well, how would we make it in nature? I mean, no fertilizer salesman's going to the Redwood forest and saying, hey, you need a little more nitrogen to grow 200 feet taller. It just happened. And so in a living soil, we started thinking, instead of mixing it in there where it has to be accurate or it could be too much, what if we just started pouring it on top? And I, I gotta tell you, at that time, Everybody was doing the opposite of nature. It was crazy. So they were doing subcool. And subcool was a great idea. He would mix a really potent soil with tons of nutrients. And since it was just off the chart, full of nutrients, you couldn't really plant right into it. I mean, some plants maybe, right? But some of these land racy plants, they just did not want the nutrients. So what you would do is you would put that in the bottom of your pot, this spicy, rich soil. And then you put a really light soil with no nutrients on top. The idea was you put your plant in... And it doesn't go into the hot nutrients until it's ready for it and then it's balanced. But nature does it the opposite. It has all of the minerals and water down below with no nutrients and it pours all the nutrients right on top and slowly decays them into the soil. And so as such, the plants have actually developed this feeder root system that lives up top to eat the food and it develops these water tap roots that go down to get water and minerals deep from the earth depending on the type of plant. So in living soil, what we do is right away, you don't have to wait. Because when we mix it in the soil, it could be too much if we overdo it. But once you put the 15-gallon the pot, let's say, of your homemade uh, three-part recipe and you put the plant into it, you could literally top dress some craft blend or your homemade version, put some more worm castings on there and cover it with mulch and put a few worms in and you could do that day one. And the reason why, like if you buy Fox Farm, they say don't feed it for a few weeks, is it's already charged with food. Where in our soil, it's charged with amendments that are going to take time to break down. And so we want that to be there and it's a balanced amount. But when we put stuff on top, we're day one, creating the biomimicry of the forest. That's eventually going to start adding food from the top, which means that as our plant grows and it eats the soil we made for it, it's going to go, oh, I wonder where my food is. And it's going to start reaching up to the top, putting feeder roots up there, especially if we use mulch and it'll say, oh, here, I'm good. I've got more food. And then you can feed it right through the top. And when you develop, this is game changer. We used to top dress and not a lot would happen. It would take weeks. Every time you'd water it in and kind of go in there, eventually it would break down. But when we added worms that would eat it and immediately make it available and we covered it with straw, some mulch of some sort, it became shady. The light wasn't hitting it anymore. The worms would go right up to it. The fungus was growing underneath it. And all of a sudden, the feeder roots would literally set up shop and they would hang and wait and next time you top dress you could see the roots like literally matted right there and they would start to work on your top dress within days. So all of a sudden it became oh you got to be 3 weeks ahead in, in organics too. Well if I build from day 1 this feeder root system I could go top dress every couple of weeks if I want and they're going to make immediate good use of it. And if any's left over, well it's it's on top. And the thing that we found is that plants, annual flowering plants when they go to die, like they've lived their time they're going to die whether they have nutrients or not, which means they're not going to just be continually force feeding themselves. They're going to stop taking up nutrients. Some of them now, the idea is that they will stop if they can. In hydro, they can't because they need water and the nutrients are already in the water, which means for them to drink, means they're going to get nutrients whether they like it or not. But in soil where you have underground aquifers and food up top, the plant can almost start to self fade, to to senescence is what they call it. And even if there's an abundance of food in the top dressing, so long as you're slowing watering down and the biology is not breaking it down completely because the plant roots have said, I don't need it anymore, the plant will still fade and it will still senesce even though there's nutrients in the soil, which sets you up for the next round without completely depleting it. So for the new grower that's setting up their container, don't be scared to top dress right in the beginning because by the time you get into full fruit production and flowering, that top dress will start to be available to the plant. And that's how I build my what I call the checking account that's in the mix and needs to be available and the savings account. And when your plant can say, oh, my checking account's pretty good, but my savings account is great, it will put more fruit out. Where if you don't have any of that, even though your soil's good, your plant's not stupid. It's not gonna put out more than would kill itself. And so you might be cheating your plant by not building that checking and savings account And here's what's nice is in a big, big container, you can put less in your savings account across the surface and the plant will react better because there's a bigger buffer of soil. You don't, like if one cup was the perfect amount in a five gallon, well, it might be a 10 cup range in a big hundred gallon. Like you could over underdo it without causing a problem. And that's where container size comes back into play. Now, feeding, compost teas, I'm never scared of, but if you're buying like liquid fish or anything that's arguably potent, I want you to wait in your soil recipe until the plant starts to show some hunger, Uh, meaning in living soil, you'll start to see like dark green will be just a little bit lighter hue of green. And as you're growing, you'll start to think, oh, she's hungry. The plants are a little bit, they want something. You can start to feed those liquids at that point, but they're so instantly available. You can't guess a month ahead of time like you can with organic amendments, if that makes
0: sense. Gotcha. Yep. Well, it's episodes like this where I wish this podcast was two hours, but it's only one hour. We just scratch the surface on things. There are so many other things that we can talk about. I have a feeling the audience is going to be demanding a part two. So maybe in the future, we could do a part two and kind of pick up what we left off. I mean, we could get into yep. IPM, Seed Sprouted teas, Cover Crotch, oh, mulch Layers, all that stuff. I think that would make for a great part two if you're willing to come I back. I would be for, willing. Uh, I
1: want, basically, like, I also practice Jiu-Jitsu. One of the things I learned there is that The black belt, to be the best teacher, he literally has to teach the fundamental basics every day over and over and over again because that's all that matters. When they win competitions, oftentimes it's a day one move they used. And so this base recipe could be all that you ever need to know. And some people don't require getting their black belt and learning the nuances of shit that just doesn't really help them get any further. And so because of that, I would be honored to do more of these with you. And hoping that maybe instead of me saying it over and over again, they can just go to the episode and watch it from different people. And what I've also learned from jiu-jitsu is that just because one black belt told me doesn't mean I don't want to hear it from a dozen others that might describe it differently and help my brain understand and fully connect it and internalize it. So um, for whatever reason, your viewers really like the way your style of answering and asking questions. And our growers like what I do, but we're different. And so combining our efforts, I think, reaches more people, and I'd love to do it. Um, IPM could be a whole episode. Uh, We could really go down the rabbit hole, soil testing, all this. But from today, what I want people to get from it is that soil building, if following some good principles, doesn't have to be rocket science. And they they should absolutely, even if you don't stop what you're doing, add one new thing and make some soil from scratch. Get your own hands in there. I think you'll never go back if you try it.
0: Well said. So wrapping things up. How can the listeners find you? And what do you have upcoming in the future?
1: Uh, good question. BuildAsoil.com is the best way to find us. We also have a YouTube at BuildAsoil. We have an Instagram. Um, you can come down to the store anytime, see our vegetable farm, see our indoor grow here where we demonstrate. All of it's very transparent. We're in Montrose, Colorado, in Western Colorado. Um, beyond that, as far as the future goes, we have a number of things that we're working on right now um, that we'll be sharing soon. We've got a New powdered veg growing product that helps if you're in smaller containers, helps if you need something for foliar. Um, So we'll be releasing that soon. Um, Otherwise, most of what we're working on at Build-A-Soil is just quality control and scalability without giving up on that. And that's just a lot of logistics and boring business stuff we could talk about all day. But I'm more excited to talk about the soil stuff. And as far as new, a lot of it's just old school. So nothing terribly new coming out. Just a repeat of the the mantra of the Build-A-Soil way of mimicking nature and using what works.
0: Awesome. Well, Like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, I will have a link to Jeremy's channel down in the description section below. If you enjoyed this video, click that thumbs up button. Also love to know in the comment section below, do you want a part two? If so, put part two in the comment section and let us know some organic methods that you do, You know, whether it be building soil or feedings, so on and so forth. Love to hear about that in the comments because there are so many different ways to do this and sharing those best practices within the comments, I think can be value added for many people. If you're tuning in on one of the podcast platforms, please leave a rating and review, particularly Apple podcasts, and then subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single week I'm releasing these Garden Talk podcast episodes, and I would love for you to tune into future episodes. Jeremy, once again, thank you so much for coming on to this episode today. I think it was a banger. I think there's a lot of people that are gonna have value from the information you put out, and keep doing what you're doing, man. It's good stuff, for sure.
1: Thank you so much, and uh, nice shirt by the way.
0: Yeah, you got the family farm. Had to like. represent.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's our farm. If you want to follow that, that's at Build a Soil Family Farms on Instagram. Um, we'll put it up on YouTube this year as well. And I hope that if you guys have questions and you if, and, and you ask them on the Mister Grow It on this episode, I'm going to go in afterwards in the comments and I'll try and answer anything that I maybe missed. So please ask anything relative to the content today, and I'll be
0: sure to answer them. Awesome. All right. That being said, peace out, everyone. See you in the next episode.